Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Sometimes you just need to step back, evaluate where you are, decide where you're going, get back to the basics, the core, back to your roots, as it were. If you do that, everything will become clear. Well, if you do it correctly, if you screw it up, I don't know what to tell you. What a disaster. I mean, you've really made a mess of things now. Maybe you should look into finding a British police box or purchasing a DeLorean and see if you can maybe go back and fix that timeline or something. See, getting back to the basics is only effective if you get back to the right basics or the real basics. If you're traveling from one location to the other and you're off by one degree on your course, after 100 yards, you'll be off just over five feet. Not a big deal. In one mile, it's just under 100 feet. If you're heading from San Francisco to Los Angeles, you'll miss by 6 miles. San Francisco to Washington, D.C., you'll be off by 42.6 miles. From one point on the globe all the way around back to that same point, you'll be off by 435 miles. And if you fly your rocket to the moon, you'll miss by almost twice the diameter of the moon, over 4,100 miles. This is illustrative of getting back to the basics versus getting back to the wrong basics. On today's episode, we're going to start a journey, admittedly a somewhat painful journey, fundamentally misunderstanding just everything. Then we'll wrap up a long journey we've walked together regarding basics that nobody seems to care about anymore. And goal update after the bumper. And basically, I need to get back to the basics on that too. So, get some snacks, knowing that snacky treats help to ease the pain and dry your eyes. It's not so much goodbye as it is see you later, maybe. Because basically, here we go. So in the recent segment, Lying Liars Who Lie, I drew the comparison between the blatant sexually perverted blasphemous churches embracing of all things transgenderism and child mutilation with the accepted, celebrated, mainstream churches of today that are also teaching heresy, but in a socially, theologically acceptable way. The church in question being North Point Community Church, the product of one pastor, and I use that term loosely, Andy Stanley. More specifically, I mentioned one of his latest series that he entitled The Fundamentalist. Now, my intention in the Lying Liar segment was to do a brief summation of the eight videos in the series, But as I was watching the videos, which you can thank me later for, for doing it so you don't have to, the amount of manipulation techniques, the thinly veiled attacks on theologically rich churches and pastors, and the just plain old poor teaching, more concerned with making a point than exegeting the Bible correctly, the the write-up for the segment got longer and longer and and then way too long to do in any one segment, so I decided to break it down into a mini-series reviewing these videos. Now, this will run, I'm guessing, for maybe five segments, but as I'm not done reviewing all the videos at this time, um, this is a guess. So, uh, we'll see, right? I think it's a fairly solid guess, but we'll see. So, let me start here. I'm not a discernment professional. I'm not a degreed theologian. I'm not a pastor. I'm a nobody. 
But as R.C. Sproul says, everyone is a theologian. And as Acts 17, 10-11 illustrates, quote, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If you're a Christian, you are both a theologian and a discerner. I'd argue that most Christians feel incapable or inadequate to do either of these, and many Christians neither care nor want to be either of these. Too bad. You need to gird up your loins or hike up your skirt. If you're a Christian, you're both of these, by default. That said, I'm far from perfect in either of these realms. That sucking sound you just heard was millions of shocked listeners the world over gasping in shock all at once. I guarantee that even with as much as I cover from each video, I'll miss something. I guarantee that you'll find points I'm making to be too picky, and I guarantee I'll get some things wrong. Good! That'll give you some practice on being a theologian and a discerner. We all need to do the work. Now, let me set up the context for why I'd spend my time seeming to bash a professing Christian who just sees the Christian religion slightly differently than me. Shouldn't I be in support of a man who is leading people to Christ, even if it's in a somewhat unorthodox manner, or at the very least not the way that I think it should be done? Why should we quibble over secondary or tertiary issues, you know, non-essential aspects of the Christian faith? Well, although I do believe that there are core beliefs layered by beliefs of lesser importance with regard to the gospel and to salvation, I tend to see more of an interconnectedness than I think most people do. Admittedly, I might be wrong. Who am I to say I'm right and the majority is wrong? But when you define salvation as repentance and faith or repentance and belief— well, the object of our faith and belief is Jesus, and the belief is not just what Jesus did on the cross. It's not just his resurrection. It's a belief in Jesus as a whole, virgin birth to ascension as God-man, and everything from eternity past to eternity future. What did he say? What did he believe? What did he claim to be true? Jesus, speaking with the two disciples after his resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The scriptures at that time were literally the Old Testament only. The Bible is about Jesus, all of it. And if it's about Jesus, then the Bible is trustworthy and true. To me, this means that to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Old Testament, not just selected passages, not passages that science says are okay to agree with. The entire Old Testament. Further, in John 5, Jesus is speaking to the Jews and states, quote, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We tend to throw Jesus in the New Testament box, relegating the angry, wrathful God to the Old Testament and the more rational, reasonable, loving God in the form of Jesus to the New Testament, and never the twain shall meet. But there aren't twain. There is one Bible, one scripture, one God, one belief. 17th century German Lutheran theologian Rupertus Maldinius wrote, quote, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. 
Now, I would say that the odds are fairly high that you've heard this saying before. The sentiment of the saying is very nice. In order to stand shoulder to shoulder with someone in a faith-based worldview, we must have agreement on the core beliefs. The non-core beliefs are up for discussion and personal decision, and at all times we should have brotherly Christian love for one another. The question I have is, what are essential beliefs? For instance, should I break bread with a PC USA member that proclaims Jesus as Lord while supporting abortion? Is abortion an essential belief? What about a young earth? Is that essential? I mean, even Ken Ham in Answers in Genesis says no, at least from a standpoint of salvation. How about affirming gender transition of kids or drag queens in the pulpit? Are those essential issues? You might say no, they are not the core beliefs. I'd argue that they are, or at least their direct connection to core beliefs is too close and too tight to ignore them. Can you be saved while supporting the murder of the unborn? I would say no. Can you be saved while believing in the sexual mutilation of children? I'd say no. Can you be saved if you believe in the theory of evolution? You'd say yes. I would very very cautiously say yes. The problem being, Jesus and the apostles clearly believed in the creation account in Genesis. So, if Jesus believed in the creation account, the flood account, the Jonah account, as written, can we say that obviously Jesus didn't know what he was talking about and yet still believe in Jesus? And I have to conclude... I don't know, but my leaning is more toward the direction that if we call Jesus ignorant or a liar, no, we're not going to be saved. Your mileage may vary. Jude chapter, uh, gotcha, all right, Jude is only one chapter, 25 verses, tiny fella, important message. Jude says this, and note, I'm reading a selection of verses from 3 to 13, not to try to twist the scriptures, just to hit the specific portions applicable to my point. Let me encourage you to read the chapter in its entirety. I'm not trying to hide anything here. Quote, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These men defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. These men blaspheme the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever." In Matthew 7, Jesus himself states, quote, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, Dan, you ask, are you saying, are you claiming that Andy Stanley is a waterless cloud, a doubly dead tree, a wild wave of the sea, a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing? Yes, I, I am, actually. Andy has shown a disdain, a dislike for the scriptures, disguising it as a love for Jesus and his words only, the red letters, if you will. Yes, he uses selected scriptures as it suits his purpose, but he doesn't like them, he doesn't believe them, and he consistently preaches against them. As I stated in Lying Liars, this isn't just Andy. There is an endless list of who I'd term mainstream pastors and women who think they're pastors, which they're not, ask Paul, who fall into this category. Is Andy a saved man? Okay, well, I don't have the ability to judge his eternal soul, but looking at his fruit, at best, I think we have reason to seriously ask this question and doubt his salvation. So the reason I'm tackling this sermon series is because of what he said in video number seven. In video seven, Andy made the comment that some people may ask why he would make his own list, maybe even claiming theological superiority over him, stating that they like the creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed, more than his list. This is where he plays the victim card and then goes off on a tangent with the implication that, well, maybe we can't really trust the Apostles' Creed. You can check out the end of the Lying Liar segment for a bit more on that, or in a few weeks, the review of video number seven. It'll be covered in both. Andy and his ilk are master manipulators. They're professional victims. They're agenda-driven wolves. And if anyone is being saved in his or any of these churches, it's by exception, not the rule. There are a large number of baptisms. There's no arguing that, likely following a large number of false conversions, as these pastors are not teaching the gospel truth, or really the gospel at all, for the most part. Rather, they teach emotionalism and veiled or blatant health, wealth, prosperity gospel with an ever-increasing helping of judge not, using the overused, heavily promoted, very selective message of love like Jesus as the ladle to slather judge not across us. Acceptance and love has replaced in large part, if not entirely, repentance and faith. And although my intention is not to be a discernment ministry, from time to time I'll likely do something like this, if for no other reason than to keep the fact that you, if you're born again, and I are in fact theologians, Bereans, and discerners. So with that all too lengthy intro, let's jump into message number one of Andy's fundamental list. For copyright reasons, I won't use any of Andy's sound clips as he doesn't actually play fair when it comes to the fair use policy, but I will liberally quote him throughout these reviews. Andy's first TED Talk. Andy's first sermon. 
Andy's first speech in this series was exactly what you'd expect. A lot of key words and phrases, a softening of church tradition, doctrine, and theology. And to keep it sounding like it's Christian, he tells us that while we're throwing out all that harmful church tradition, just remember to hang on to baby Jesus. We'll get to that. He's very invested in throwing out everything but the specific words that Jesus said, except for the ones that he said that refer to other areas in the Bible that we must throw out, like the Old Testament, for example. His title for the series, as I've mentioned, is The Fundamental List. He makes a point of the fact that he didn't come up with the title, but he really likes it, you know, because it's like fundamentalist. Now, keep in mind that a fundamentalist can have either a positive or negative connotation depending on how you use it. It can refer to a religious movement or faith tradition that holds to the basic principles, traditions, and teachings of that religion, refusing to bow to the pressures around them today. That's a good thing. It can also mean someone that follows their faith system to the point that they're intolerant, abusive, potentially violent, or even murderous against those that do not subscribe to their fundamentalism. For instance, we call Muslim terrorists extremist Muslims. They're not. They're actually the fundamentalist Muslims. They're following their religion as written, which includes the intolerance and violence, the convert-or-die mentality. The extremists are actually the peaceful Muslims as they're choosing to only follow part of their holy book, only some of the mandates given in the Quran. They're refusing to follow their faith as given to them by their prophet. Now, knowing Andy, I guarantee that this reference to fundamentalism is a dig at those Christians that feel we should adhere to the Bible as written from cover to cover. Andy does not subscribe to this view of the Bible and feels that those of us that do are just too strict and rigid and just too mean. So Andy introduces a series by saying, quote, We're going to attempt to answer the question, what must one believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? Not what must one do. We talk about the do part all the time, and if you're new to our church or you're watching online for the first time, this is a group of people who aren't just about believing. We're about doing because doing is what makes a difference in the world, not just believing. Believing doesn't make any difference. Yeah, he just said that. Now, now we can give him the benefit of the doubt that he just spoke inartfully, but how many times should we give him this benefit? He believes that believing doesn't do anything. Well, this is what James spoke about, right? Working out your salvation, do because you're saved, not to be saved. I'll give Andy the benefit on this one for now. But he really threw belief under the bus, in my opinion. And again, I think the worst of what he does. Continuing on, quote, But at the same time, it's important to ask this question, and I'll explain why in a minute. What must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What's essential? Or to the title of the series, what's fundamental? What's the bare minimum? What's the can't do without? The can't be without? Now, I find it interesting that he threw in the phrase the bare minimum, uh, as churches these days are filled to the rafters with people that are solely interested in fulfilling only the bare minimum necessary to, you know, just squeak into heaven, even if it's just through the back door. Now, enter Andy's most oft-used manipulation technique, downplaying the congregation's IQ while identifying with them and making it okay to be ignorant. He sets the people at ease with this and, and makes them more apt to just accept what's being told to them. He says that this whole idea of what's essential is really confusing because different beliefs believe different things. 
Now, I'm not sure what's so confusing about that concept. I mean, I know that many people ask why there have to be so many denominations, but generally people understand that denominations and church splits, etc., etc., are based off of differences in beliefs or interpretations. But he likens it to a huge house made up of only living rooms, with large doors in each room to the outside, trying to get people to come in, and small passages between the rooms, because as he says, quote, because people are constantly changing churches and changing faith traditions. And I have to ask, are they? I mean, constantly? Now, his illustration of this giant house has everything from Catholic and Orthodox to Anglican to Primitive Baptist, Fundamentalist to Mainline Protestant, and he says that he could add many, many more rooms. But could he? I'd have to argue with the premise that we're all in the same house. I don't believe that all belief systems are in the same house, but okay, Andy, we'll, we'll go with this. He says with all the differences in beliefs, interpretations, rules, and styles, quote, the main thing that all of these have in common, there's really two things they have in common, but the main thing they all have in common is each one of these is absolutely confident that they're right and everybody else is not right or half right or misinformed or confused or uninformed or maybe misled. And the truth is including our faith tradition, our, you know, network of churches. The truth is all of us are probably wrong about some things, but hopefully we're not wrong about the essential things, the fundamental things, the kind of bottom line things that you have to believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, the essential things. Okay. Do you see what he's doing? If you claim to be right, you're not. This is how he counters those that adhere to a more strict biblical theology. You know, well, they're no more right or wrong than anyone else. This also appears to be a push towards some sort of ecumenicism. I'm not entirely sure here, but, you know, where all faiths are basically the same and they all lead to the same place in the end. I mean, this is where Billy Graham went in the last few years of life, personally declaring that Mormonism was no longer a cult. Rather, it was Christian, just like what he believed. And, uh... No, it wasn't, and it isn't, and it can never be. Now, I guarantee that Andy is moving that kind of direction. There's no question he is. Maybe not as a priority. But you can't be accepting of everyone unless you start with being accepting of other belief systems. You have to broaden that scope somewhere. So he wants to cover what's indispensable, necessary, crucial, central, and required to be a, quote, faithful follower of Jesus. You'll notice throughout these and all other sermons he preaches, being a Jesus follower is the goal. Being a Christian carries negative connotations. This is again by design. Then he hits the inverse of that list and states kind of curiously, quote, but equally as important, in fact, maybe because of what's happening in our culture, even more important is this question, what's not? What's peripheral, right? Now, why are we letting the culture dictate what's not important? That's a very interesting way of determining what's not as important in our faith, letting the culture tell us. So he defines peripheral importance as what's cultural, comfortable, fashionable, traditional, harmful. Wait, traditional? Okay, again, interesting that traditions made it into his list of what's peripheral. Right? In fact, he defines comfortable as, quote, this is the way our church has always done it, and traditional as, quote, this is how we've always done it, and if we leave it, we may somehow be leaving what's true and leaving the actual faith. You see where he's going, right? Don't you? I mean, it's not just me, right? So he feels that 
what we're seeing today is a large number of people that are sick of the church and faith traditions throwing out their faith completely. Quote, way too many are throwing baby Jesus out with the bathwater. He explains why this is understandable. Quote, in every generation, going all the way back to the second century, new, novel, sometimes toxic, sometimes cruel, sometimes divisive, even dangerous teaching and dangerous and opinions get woven into certain streams of Christianity, and these new and novel ideas are often elevated to the status of doctrine and dogma. This is what you have to do in theology. This is what God says. Non-essentials become essential. And then you, my friend, my fellow victim, if you dare question these non-essentials, you're considered a non-believer or a fake Christian, you know, simply for asking questions. How dare you ask questions? Or more accurately, how dare they, right? How dare they do this to you? You were just deconstructing. You were just questioning. You were just trying to follow poor baby Jesus and the essentials of the faith. And here's the key. Listen carefully here to what he says, quote, And the reasons we know sometimes that these things aren't essential is when you hold them up against Jesus as we find him in the Gospels, when you hold them up to the life and the teaching and what Jesus modeled, and when you hold them up against the behavior of Jesus, when you hold them up against what Jesus prioritized and what Jesus did not prioritize, it becomes clear to you and clear to us, wait a minute, this is just how you do it. This is just what you expect of your people, but that's not fundamental to Christianity. That's not essential to Christianity. That's some sort of add-on. See, Andy is slick. Jesus taught on this earth for about, what, three years? That's all. We have a small sample of what he did in those three years with the comment that, quote, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. That was, you know, per John as the last statement in his gospel. But Andy is more than happy to make the massive leap of logic that we should focus only on what we've read about with the assumption that if it wasn't taught, spoken, or demonstrated in those gospel writings, then Jesus must have been at most neutral on whatever topic we're talking about. And in fact, Andy just recently came out with another statement saying that you don't need to believe all the Gospels. As long as you believe one of them, yeah, you're good. Then shifting manipulation techniques, his audience is now smart. They they now know why these things get accepted as dogma because they support someone's bias or they support a cultural movement or, quote, as we've seen recently, sometimes they support a political agenda. Now I know what I would think when he says something like that. But I have a sneaking suspicion that his ideas are nearly directly opposite of my ideas. He continues by saying that the reason it's really hard to root out these bad teachings is because the leaders support their view with scriptures, verses they've taken out of the Bible, and then they stand up and say that the Bible teaches and God says, quote, and sure enough, you know, if you look at their interpretation of certain scriptures, They have found a way to support these new and novel ideas. And if you don't go along with these new and novel ideas, you are actually going against the scripture. But then you actually open the gospels. And once again, you follow Jesus through the gospels. And you realize, wait a minute, my view may conflict with your view, but my view doesn't necessarily conflict with what I see in Jesus. You can see the danger in what he's teaching, right? This is a master class in how you unhitch from the Bible while making it look like you're all in, just immersed in Christianity. Read the Gospels sometime. 
Don't use references except for what Jesus referenced directly. Look at the laws, rules, commandments, actions, and behaviors of Jesus only. Ignore everything else that you know about the Bible. Focus only on what you'd know if all you read were the Gospels. And you'd see why Andy is doing this, precisely the way he's doing it. He says that we all like to be right, and if someone can put chapter and verse to what we want to believe, we're all in. At this point, I'm only a third of the way through this sermon message talk thing. It is just heresy rich, let me tell you. Don't worry, we'll pick up some speed here. This is all the setup, right? He's got to carefully, exactly lay the foundation for his upcoming heresy. So he makes the claim that oftentimes these ideas conflict with what Paul called the law of Christ, which Stanley claims is Jesus's final command, quote, his one command that superseded all other commands. If you're going to follow me, he said, you love other people the way that I love you and you love your enemy. If somebody considers you their enemy, you do not have to return the favor. In fact, if you're going to follow me, Jesus says, you don't return the favor. Kind of putting words in Jesus's mouth here, sort of. We want to be careful about doing something like that. Now, I don't know if it's the final command that Jesus gave, but it didn't supersede anything. I'm assuming Andy is liberally speaking of when the Pharisee tried to catch Jesus yet again by asking him what the greatest commandment was, and Jesus, being Jesus, didn't supersede anything. He summed up the tablets of the law into two categories, love God, love others. Nowhere in that did Jesus say to love your enemies. Now, earlier on in Matthew, so definitely not his final command, again, not a command that superseded anything, Jesus said, quote, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, Neither of these are final commands, and although there are some Levitical laws that no longer apply, etc., etc., there's no superseding commands, not like Andy's trying to say it. But it's so easy to see what Andy is saying when you know what his agenda is. Unfortunately, his followers don't know and don't really care what his agenda is, and they're definitely not curious enough to question what he tells them. They're surely not going to open their Bible to try to figure it out. This is just feeding them exactly what they want to be fed, and they're more than happy to gobble it down. Now we flip techniques again. He now identifies with his victimized, but honest and mature audience, understanding that sometimes when people try to question or distance themselves from these bad bad teachings because they didn't see Jesus say or do specifically what they don't agree with in their current church, they leave the church, and often they leave the faith entirely. Quote, in their zeal to separate themselves from something unhealthy or harmful, they separate themselves from something valuable and important. But not all leave. Some still believe in God. Some still hold Jesus high, but they deconstruct their faith. Now, Andy says that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. I say that if you're deconstructing your faith— at least from all the examples I've seen, it's because you don't like Christianity as a whole. You like parts of it or the concept of it, but not everything. So you chop out the parts you don't like and you live a spiritual, kind of kind of a moralistic life, but you're not a Christian and apparently you never were. Now, Andy says, quote, you haven't really changed what you believe about God and Jesus. It's just the whole organized religion and the church tradition. It just didn't seem to line up and Now you're kind of in no man's land. See, it's not that the Christian religion was wrong. It's that it didn't line up with what you believed. 
Well, Christianity isn't a buffet where you can take what you want and leave the rest. I'd almost say that if storied church tradition doesn't align with what you believe, the odds are actually much greater that you're wrong, despite what you do or don't like. Quote, you had to figure out what you needed to leave behind, and, and you're pretty confident what you want to leave behind, because if that's the way you have to treat people in order to be a Christian, well, I'm not sure I can be a Christian, or I can't be that kind of a Christian because I don't think Jesus would treat people that way. I don't think Jesus is going to send my brother to hell. He's one of the finest people I know. I just have to step away and think about this. Oh, I mean, if if that statement isn't telling. I mean, who cares what you think? Hell is for the unsaved. If your brother is saved or not, that's what you need to be concerned with. Mother Teresa, here, let me let me do this. People are not going to like this. Mother Teresa, one of the most charitable, humble people in our modern history, if not for all of time, the odds are she's in hell today. Looking at her words, what she believed about how to get to heaven, about who she believed Jesus is and was, etc., etc. She didn't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. She didn't believe in Christianity as told in the Bible. She did not understand salvation or the gospel. She was a wonderful woman. But Jesus doesn't look at the external. He looks at the heart. Now, thankfully, though, Andy is here to affirm us. If we leave such a hateful church tradition, good for us. We're mature enough. We're honest enough to know that we need to get out of that. Furthermore, quote, a faith that can't be questioned can't be trusted. You're going to want to keep that in mind for a few minutes later here. Again, I know how I could interpret what he just said, and I could agree with it in my interpretation, but I also know how Andy is meaning it. This is directed toward those stodgy theologians, those Bible thumpers, those faith leaders that question Andy's teaching. So the answer to all our problems, we, quote, hang on to baby Jesus. Even if you throw out the church and the church tradition, just, you know, hang on to baby Jesus. Andy then goes on to bash the church as a whole. All churches have a set of beliefs, a God box. And you better believe what's in the God box or you're not a God person and you'll have to leave. He says that churches don't want to be questioned and they don't want their rules and traditions questioned. So they create a system that makes it so questions can't be asked. Therefore, people can't grow and learn and they're kept in a state of immature faith by design. Mm, bad churches, bad churches. Now, I agree that questions need to be asked. I'm a firm believer that we should teach why we believe what we believe, as well as why we don't believe the others. That necessarily requires that we teach, at least to some degree, evolution and creation, Islam and Christianity. But we're very careful how we do this, as we do not flippantly hold out the truth and a lie and offer them as equals. We wouldn't have a piece of candy in one fist, poison in the other, and let our child randomly choose and eat, hoping that they choose the right one, but respecting their right to choose. We show both. We teach about both. We give them the piece of candy as the correct choice. So now we're 20 minutes into this 30-minute sermon. The ground has been set for the series. You've been successfully manipulated. You are open and ready to accept Andy telling you what is fundamental to be a Jesus follower. Not one scripture has been read yet. Did you notice that? Andy then takes us on a little journey, back to 30 AD. No church, no the Bible, no hymns, no choir, no Christian theology, no systematic theology. Oh, thank goodness. Just law and the prophets and Torah. Um, 
Andy, that's the Bible, or at least that's the scriptures that Jesus and the apostles mention and the, and the New Testament writers are referencing. There's no hymn, sure, not like we have hymnals today, but there were the Psalms as well as other songs of worship that are found elsewhere. But no, there, there's only the law and the prophets, the Torah, the temples, the priests, Roman occupation, and this unusual rabbi from Nazareth that's drawing huge crowds. He says some confusing things, some helpful things. He has some people that love him, some that hate him. He's calling out the corrupt religious systems. And finally, with 10 minutes to go, we hit Matthew 16. Jesus asking his disciples who the people say he is, and then who do they say he is? Peter, of course, answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, Andy expounds on this a little, just, you know, in a in a kind of a curious way. Quote, Peter's answer is a lot. Messiah, anointed one, every king, a priest or prophet would pour oil on a man's head to make him king. He's saying, no, 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 no priest, no prophet. I believe that you are God's final king. <sighs> that God has chosen you to be the king of the entire human race. That God has anointed you as king. And that's why you're his son, because it's a dynasty. And King God, who is king, has made you his king and has anointed you as king. We believe you're not a Messiah. I believe that you are the Messiah. And in some unique way, God's son in a body, standing out in the sun, in sandals, walking everywhere you go. Now, maybe this is just me being picky again. I accept that. But first, Peter would not think that Jesus was the Messiah for the entire human race. Not at this point, at least. He would be thinking locally, the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish chosen people. Second, if Peter believed him to be the Messiah, I think he would have recognized that Jesus was the prophet, priest, and king, but it at least appears that Andy is claiming that Peter denied Jesus as prophet and priest, just the final king. And third, this isn't why Jesus is God's son, because God made him king. Quite the opposite. Jesus is the Messiah, the king, because he is God, because he is God's son. Now, maybe again, he just said it poorly. But he definitely said it oddly, backwardly. And since he is very careful about how he crafts his words, I've got to think that there's something there. And so Andy asks the question, what if this is right? What if Peter is right about who Jesus is? Shouldn't everyone just be quiet and listen to Jesus? And yes, they should. Andy says, quote, acknowledging who Jesus is and getting that right, acknowledging who Jesus is and what Jesus means to you, what Jesus means to us, and what Jesus means to everyone, it means Jesus is, to quote Crawford Ritz, Jesus isn't a reference point. Jesus is everything. He is our king. He becomes the center of everything. Think about this. Anything he said, it's as if God was speaking. Well, I don't agree that we get to define what Jesus means to us. It's for us to strive to understand who we are in Jesus. But yes, I agree that Jesus is central to history, to humanity, to the scriptures. But Andy neglects to remember that the Bible in its entirety is God-breathed and that God spoke through the prophets directly in the Old Testament. He says that if you want to know what God thinks, well, Jesus walked on the earth and spoke the words of God. And yes, but that wasn't the first or last words of God. And he has his motives, though, as to why he pushes this very isolated narrative, as I keep saying. So these apostles that believe that Jesus was the Messiah at the crucifixion apparently unbelieved, right? And why? Because they had a God box. And the death of Jesus didn't fit in their God box. But when Jesus rose from the dead, quote, they realized our box was too small. Our box was misinformed. Our box was ancient. 
our box was traditional. And that's when they refollowed. So a call back to the God box, but their box isn't like our God box, not today, and not all boxes are bad necessarily. He's right, their box was misinformed because those that controlled the teaching were not teaching about who the Messiah was and what the prophecies said about the Messiah. They were teaching selectively. So although Andy denigrates theology and systematic theology, the point of a very structured analysis of the Bible is to do all that we can to ensure we understand the Bible fully, not partially, like was being taught back then, like Andy teaches. In fact, if the apostles had an ancient and traditional God box per the scriptures, they would have understood what was happening. Basically, a bad God box is a bad God box. But a good God box, wait for it, is a good God box. But not to Andy. If you are a traditional fundamentalist, if you have a structure of beliefs, regardless of if they're biblically correct or not, they're bad. And then uh, then he makes a claim that the only thing that the church has agreed upon since the beginning is that, quote, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. All the other stuff has been disputed and disagreed on, but the church has always agreed on this. And I don't think that's exactly true, as heretical sects of this church have existed and do exist today that debate even that point. And he says, quote, It's why every single morning I wake up and get my Bible out and I read something that Jesus said or something that people who knew Jesus said about him. Because what a privilege. I mean, where else should I go? What else is there? What's more important than that? What's more significant than that? To hear the voice of God from God's final king. So I guess Andy has a free Gideon Testament because he doesn't need any of that Old Testament stuff, right? That's not important per Andy's statement. Only the words of Jesus or the words of someone that knew him talking about him. Andy could practically fit his Bible in his wallet. Where else should he go? Well, I mean, there are 66 books You could literally go to, I don't know, any of those. Most of them point directly to Jesus. All of them point at least generally to Jesus. All of them are the inspired words of God through the Holy Spirit. Some of the words are directly the words of God through his chosen prophets. Some of those words speak directly about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth as the God-man. But Andy doesn't need or want those. Those just, you know, kind of complicate things. And with two minutes to go, that brings us to the first fundamental point, quote, Jesus is God's son and our king. Then Andy's version of what I I think is supposed to be a gospel message, quote, if that's who Jesus is, then what else can we do but submit? What else can we do but worship? What else can we do but say yes? Who are we to question? Let me break in here. I thought that if we couldn't question, we couldn't trust, right? I digress, continuing on. Because if God sent his son into this world because he loved the world and because God loved you and because he sent his son into this world to pay the sin debt that you could not pay and you know that God is for you and Jesus is God's king, what else do we do but bow down and worship, surrender, and to use the Jesus word to follow? He then says that if you're clear about that first point, that Jesus is God's son and our king, quote, you're pretty much good to go because as we're going to discover, everything else flows from that. And clearly, this is where we'll stop with this one. As I hopefully made clear, Andy is a deceptive and very dangerous man. 
He says things that sound right. He is a master manipulator. He is very good at putting you at ease and making you suggestible. He's very good at acting like he's fighting for you against the oppression that you didn't even know, or maybe you did, that you were under. He mentions our sin debt. But what sin debt? Why do we have a sin debt? Isn't that in the old God box? The, the mean one? He never said anything about sin in this entire talk. And, and what does he mean that God is for us? No. No, he's not. Not for all of us. God is only for his children. The unsaved are enemies of God. God may allow a common grace to all humanity, right? We have sunshine. We have air to breathe. But that doesn't mean he hates the sin but loves the sinner. That's not what the Bible says, at least. God hates the sin and the sinner. And what does it mean to surrender to Jesus? And notice that Andy didn't mention salvation. Nothing. A sermon without a real gospel message is not a sermon, it's a TED Talk, an inspirational speech at best. The church I attend does an excellent job of scripture reading, explanation of the context of the scripture, application for today, and they always wrap up with a gospel message that seamlessly stems and flows from whatever passage of scripture was being preached on that day, Old or New Testament, because all scripture is God-breathed, so all of it ties together. Andy couldn't give a gospel message because his sermon had nothing to do with the gospel and had very little to do with the Bible. And people walked out of that service or closed the window on their computer and within a few minutes forgot nearly everything he said, only with some incorrect and bad information deposited deep in their brains for later recall and a bad taste in their mouth for anyone that dare try to put God in a box and tell them that who they think Jesus is is wrong. Yeah, very dangerous, very wolf-like. So in the next one, we'll look at the next few points on the fundamentalist. And just as Andy closed his sermon, let me say that again, as he closed his sermon, referring to the important details in this list, quote, we're going to look at many of those details next time in part two of our series, The Fundamentalist, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. Don't miss a single episode. Fade to black. Episode. That's how he wrapped up his sermon. That's how he promoted next Sunday's sermon. Episode. But hey, you don't miss a single episode either. Welcome back, my fellow constitutionalist Americans, to the American Genesis, episode 41, part 23 of our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Well, we've made it. This is the final episode looking at the constitutional amendments, and this will be the final episode for the American Genesis series, at least for now. My thought is to potentially continue this at some point in the future looking at the Federalist Papers, but for now, we're going to take a little break. Believe it or not, we started this series back in episode 48 on July 19th, 2022, so just over a year ago. And in that time, we've walked through the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, and now the Constitutional Amendments. In fact, we haven't just walked through them, we've read each and every word of them. If you've hung with me the entire time, I'd bet you're in company with maybe, what, 5% of Americans or less that have actually read or listened through all of these documents? In fact, I double that bet and say that almost none of our elected officials have ever read through these documents in their entire life. And for most of them, that's, what, three, four hundred years? So, on we go, boldly heading toward the finish. The last two amendments aren't anything 
too earth-shattering, definitely not as crucial as some past amendments, although 26 has some consequences and controversy. One interesting little factoid, however, is that Amendment 26 took the shortest amount of time for the states to ratify of all the amendments, and 27 took the longest. So let's dive in. We'll hit these last two amendments, then we'll figure out a way to wrap up this series, and at least put it on ice for a while. Most people today, men especially, know about the draft. In fact, as of the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about including women in the draft as well. And as the father of a daughter, uh, quickly approaching 18, I'll just say this, over my dead body. There are a lot of signs of the handbasket-to-heck going of America right now. One of them is the fact that we've apparently given up the concept of protecting women. Of course, we can't even define woman today, and we're trying to use externally mutilating surgery and internally mutilating drugs and chemicals to make our own version of a woman. So, I don't know, I don't know which one of those came first, the, the protecting or the mutilating on a chicken or the egg, right? But as of now, men are required to sign up for selective service, or the draft, when they hit 18, and they're eligible to be drafted until they turn 27. With every war or conflict one of our illustrious presidents gets us in, fear that the draft will be enacted rolls through the country yet again. The fact is, conscription to military service has been around since early in American history. The colonial militias used a form of conscription. The Civil War sparingly used conscription. Woodrow Wilson, a flaming garbage dumpster of a president, enacted the Selective Service Act of 1917 for World War I, FDR signed the first Peacetime Selective Training and Service Act in 1940 for the build-up to World War II, and of course many of us at least know the draft for the Vietnam War. After Nixon declined the opportunity to continue the draft process in 1973, uh, Jimmy Carter brought it back again in 1980. In the 1960s, due to the drafting of 18-year-olds to go fight in Vietnam, the pressure mounted on state and federal legislators to lower the voting age from 21 to 18. If the government could force an 18-year-old man to fight for the freedom of the United States, they should be able to vote for their representatives. Makes sense, right? The push to change the voting age actually started in the 1940s, President Eisenhower was the first president to support it in his 1954 State of the Union address, but around the time of the Vietnam War, the slogan, Old Enough to Fight, Old Enough to Vote, became very popular. As part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to codify a number of do's and don'ts, cans and can'ts, with regard to voting in local, state, and federal elections, a provision was made to lower the age to 18 years old. Nixon, although opposed, signed the act in 1970. This went to the Supreme Court, who upheld the provision for federal elections, but they struck down the provisions for local and state elections, saying that Congress didn't have the right to mandate the voting process of the states. This resulted in states having to maintain two voter rolls, one for 21-year-olds and up to vote in local and state elections, and one that included 18- to 21-year-olds that could vote in federal elections. You could understand that this was an unsustainable mess. Starting in 1968, a subcommittee on constitutional amendments began holding hearings on lowering the voting age to 18. Because of the cost to states to maintain two voter rolls, the confusion that would inevitably result in the 1972 election, the subcommittee and the House Judiciary Committee approved the amendment proposal on March 2, 1971. On March 10th, the Senate voted unanimously, 94-0, to for the amendment. 
On March 23rd, the House voted 401 to 19 in favor of the amendment, which then sent the amendment to the states. The amendment was about as straightforward and basic as you could want. It had two sections. Section 1, quote, The right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. Section 2, quote, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Pretty simple. If only all the amendments and the majority of our proposed legislation today were that simple. So after passage by the Congress, it went to the states for ratification. Connecticut was the first to ratify it, but that's mostly because the state starts with a C. Five states actually ratified it on the same day, March 23, 1971. It was the of course, the day that it passed from Congress to the states. They hopped right on it. By July 1st, 1971, North Carolina became the 38th and final state needed to ratify the proposed amendment and make it the 26th amendment to the Constitution. If you're doing your math properly, that was 100 days to go from passed by the Congress to a ratified amendment. That beat the 12th amendment, which made the presidential and vice presidential candidates run as a single ticket by 89 days. So what about the rest of the state, you ask? Well, Oklahoma, Virginia, and Wyoming all ratified it in July of that year. Georgia ratified it in October 1971. South Dakota, always Johnny on the spot, found their way around to ratifying it on March 4th, 2014. And as of today, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, Nevada, New Mexico, North Dakota, and Utah have all refused to play the game. So the controversy, then, is the same as it is today. Are 18-year-olds mature enough, wise enough, serious enough to vote for individuals to represent them in their locality, in their state, and their country? And the answer is, some of them are. There are some 18-year-olds I wouldn't let take care of my fourth favorite brick. There are some 12-year-olds that are easily more mature and well thought out than most adults. Studies for quite a while now have claimed that the brain doesn't actually finish fully developing until you reach 25 or 26, and the latest studies now say not until 30. So should someone with a still mushy brain be allowed to vote? On the other end of the spectrum, many Democrats these days are advocating for 16-year-olds or even younger to have the right to vote. It's a pretty simple desire to figure out, get them while they're in the public indoctrination centers, and get them to vote for the party that claims to care about humanity and the climate and wants to give them free stuff. It's fairly well known that if political leanings change over the years, it most often moves from left to right as people get jobs, pay taxes, own property, have kids, and generally gain wisdom. Rarely do politics change from right to left as people age. But at the same time, we let kids drive at 16. Kids can legally marry at various ages around the country at less than 18 years of age, but they can stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26. They can't drink until they're 21, but they can use tobacco at 18. In most or all cases, an 18-year-old can buy a long gun, but they have to be 21 to buy a handgun. You can rent a hotel room at 18, but in all but a few states, you have to be 21 to rent a car. Unless you're a government employee, then 18 is fine. But if you're less than 25, you'll be paying a surcharge. Now, I think we can see the blatant hypocrisy in the system. When is a kid not a kid? And the reality is, I don't know. The problem really isn't the age, though. The problem is the maturity level. So a person could be given the right to drink, smoke, drive, own a gun, and rent a hotel room and vote at the age of 15 because he or she would be responsible, where another person shouldn't be doing any of those things at the age of 50. 
So I don't have a good answer. Maybe an age at which you're eligible and then a maturity testing process, like for driving, or a required parent or guardian co-signing responsibility with legal penalties for certain activities up to a certain age. I, I don't know. But I'll state one last time, at least for now, my proposal, a testing process. When you go in to vote, you take a test of random questions developed by a bipartisan or preferably an apolitical group covering the Constitution, the founding, the founders, current issues, current candidates, etc. After you take the test, you vote. You never find out if you passed or failed the test, but if you passed, your vote counts. If you failed, your vote is thrown out. At that point, I'd argue that kids could vote at any age. Felons could vote. Public and private workers could vote. I'd even entertain the discussion of giving certain visa holders the right to vote. I guarantee that voter turnout would drop because people are lazy and wouldn't want to take the test. And the number of valid votes cast would drop precipitously because I think we could all agree that, by and large, the vast majority of the voting populace are under, if not completely, uninformed. If more people would just listen to me and do what I say... I could fix all sorts of these problems, right? Anyway, moving on to the last of our constitutional amendments. The 27th Amendment is officially known as the Congressional Compensation Act of 1789. This proposed amendment was actually part of the original 12 amendments proposed by the very first Congress, 10 of which were passed and ratified, which became our Bill of Rights. One was never ratified, and this one, since it was passed by Congress with no drop-dead date for ratification by the states, just hung out there in limbo just forever. So first the text, quote, No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. The point of this was basically to stop a newly elected Congress getting into office and immediately voting themselves in a pay raise. This at least removed some of the temptation, since you wouldn't get immediate gratification. Now, to their credit, the Congress did pass this, but the states did nothing with it. At the time, it would only have taken 11 states to ratify this along with the rest of the Bill of Rights, but after passing to the states on September 25, 1789, whereas Virginia became the 11th state to ratify the first 10 amendments on December 15, 1791, well, by that same date, only six states, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Delaware, Vermont, and Virginia, had ratified this one. About seven months later, on June 27, 1792, Kentucky ratified it, and then it just sat. It got another look by Ohio, who ratified it nearly 81 years later on May 6, 1873, in retaliation of Congress voting themselves in a pay raise. But that only made eight states, when by 1873 it now needed 28 states to ratify it. Well, 105 years after Ohio, Wyoming became the ninth state to ratify it on March 6, 1978, after another pay raise was voted in for themselves in 1977. Well, then in 1982, Gregory Watson, an undergraduate at the University of Texas, Austin, wrote a paper about this amendment for his political science class. He argued that this amendment was still living, as it had no drop-dead clause, and it could be ratified still. In response to the C grade he got on his paper, he decided he wanted to prove his professor wrong and get this thing ratified. Watson spent $6,000 of his own money in 1982, which would be nearly $20,000 today, to mount a nationwide campaign to get this amendment ratified. 
The Supreme Court of 1939 had overturned a ruling by the Supreme Court in 1921 that said amendments had to be ratified in a reasonable amount of time. The 1939 court rightly said that that wasn't the call of the court. That was a matter for the legislative branch. And so with nothing to stop him, Watson was able to get Maine to ratify the amendment in April of 1983. Nine years later, May 7th, 1992, ratifying it just mere hours before New Jersey, Michigan became the 39th state to ratify the amendment, which is the number of states the ratification process required now. So in a brief 202 years and 223 days, the longest amendment to ratify in our history, the 27th Amendment was added to the Constitution. Now, although Gregory Watson wanted all 50 states to ratify this, he wasn't quite able to get his wish. Soon after New Jersey in May of 1992, Illinois and California both ratified in 1992, Rhode Island in 93, Hawaii in 94, Washington in 95, then another break, then Nebraska in 2016. And that leaves Massachusetts, Mississippi, New York, and Pennsylvania as the only states that never ratified the amendment. As of right now, there are still four amendments that are open-ended and just hanging out there, as well as two amendments that were created with drop-dead dates and have subsequently failed. First, the Congressional Apportionment Amendment. This would regulate the number of seats in the House of Representatives. It was a graduated system of proportioning representatives to the population. If this was in place today and not modified, it would require one representative for every 50,000 people, meaning that we would have about 6,700 members of the House of Representatives right now. That's about double the size of the town I grew up in. Can you imagine the voting process? This amendment was proposed as part of the first 12, the first 10, like I said, being the Bill of Rights, the 11th we just spoke of. This one is still technically alive, but it hasn't had any action on it since June 27th, of 1792. Next, the Titles of Nobility Act. This would actually strip the citizenship of any American if they were given a title, a gift, a pension, an office, etc. of a foreign power without congressional approval. Now, this has been out there since May 1st of 1810, with the last state ratifying being on December 9th, 1812. This one is still hanging out there. Next is the Corwin Amendment. This would have made slavery an institution and untouchable by the legislature and impervious to the Constitution. Now, this one was sent out on March 2nd, 1861, with the last ratification on June 2nd, 1863. It's still alive and hanging out there, but I kind of doubt that it'll see much action at this point. And then we have the Child Labor Amendment. This gives the federal government the right to regulate, limit, or prohibit child labor. Well, this is handled differently these days, of course, so it's not really needed. This went to the states on June 2nd, 1924, with the last action on it being February 25th, 1937. It is still alive, and it could still be ratified. And the two that failed, since they had timeout clauses, we had the Equal Rights Amendment. This was proposed March 22nd, 1972, with the initial due date of March 22nd, 1979, which was then extended until June 30th, 1982, at which point it was declared to have failed. And then we have the District of Columbia Voting Rights Amendment. This would have treated D.C. like it was a state for the most part, which it's not and it shouldn't be. This was proposed August 22nd, 1978, and timed out August 22nd, 1985, when it was declared to have failed. And that's it. We made it. So what have we learned? Well, first of all, all those documents, the three documents, contain about 13,300 words. 
if you listened to every episode of the American Genesis series, I added another about 112,500 words for a total of over 115,500 words. It took us 41 episodes to get through all of the material, which was accomplished in just over a year in real time, and about 11 and a half hours of podcast time. I think I've said this before, but whenever I go to a conference or a seminar or go to church or I'm forced to endure some training module, I'd like to think that I try to learn at least a few things. If I can walk away having learned a thing or two, I consider that to be a win. Hopefully, you learned a few things along the way, maybe a few things that you didn't know or didn't know as well as you do now, and although I, and I'll speak for you as well, don't have these documents or the 100,000 plus words of supporting information memorized, when we hear something on the news or read something and it references our founding documents, your mind will trigger on information that's buried deep in the Logical Christian Podcast folder somewhere in the dark recesses of your mind. So let me give just a few thoughts overall. The only possibility for the existence of this nation is that God ordained it to be. The odds of a ragtag group of mercenaries, farmers, and businessmen overcoming the British war machine were zero without the hand of God. Likewise, the language in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and at least the Bill of Rights, maybe not so much the Articles of Confederation or later amendments, it seems, are, I believe, clearly inspired in large degree. God had, maybe still has, a purpose and a use for this nation— No, we're not the new Israel. No, we're not the new promised land. No, not even West Virginia is almost heaven regardless of their motto. And no, America does not have a covenant with God. The only way for a covenant like that to exist would be for God to make it, as man isn't capable of making or upholding a covenant with God. I'm sorry, I I know that probably bursts some bubbles and goes against some of the Christian and or conservative talking heads. But all that said, and despite our clear decline in morality, spirituality, Christianity, as well as our crumbling economy, loss of power and influence on the world stage, and what appears to be a warp speed run in the direction of the movie Idiocracy, the amount of good we've done, either directly or that we've inspired in the world, is clear evidence that God at least had a plan for us. We can pray that he still does have a plan for us and that it's a plan for us to do more good in the world, not evil, and for that plan to be in place for a good long while. All that said, we've never been, nor are we now, perfect. The founders weren't perfect. They weren't given perfect inspiration, which is why we've had to amend the Constitution, but only 27 times in nearly 250 years. Both the fact that we've only had to amend it that few of times and the fact that an amendment process was made available along with that number, 250 years, shows how smart and inspired the founders were. Now, I'd like to say they were divinely inspired, and I believe that they were divinely inspired, but even if you discount that, there's no question that they drew inspiration from the Bible, specifically the Mosaic account. The relative stability and perseverance of the Constitution being biblically, if not divinely inspired, that should really tell us something. And although much debate about the applicability of the Constitution has occurred basically since it was signed and ratified, it has withstood practically every weapon used against it. Today we're debating or arguably violating nearly all, if not every, amendment in the Bill of Rights, and both sides of the aisle have plans for more amendments to push their beliefs and agenda, but overall, although battered, it still allowed the citizens of this country to live with a freedom never before seen in the world. And if we fall... I'm afraid it may never be seen again. But in light of, or despite all that, here are some things I know. We still live in a wonderful country. 
It's a blessed country. It's a free country. It's a country never before seen in history. From a human perspective, next to the Bible, these documents are possibly the most important documents ever written. As such, we, you and I, must do what we can to ensure these documents are preserved. Most of us will do that by voting in constitutionalist candidates, so that those that hate this country and hate the freedom they outline aren't able to dispose of them. And finally, I don't know what the future holds for this country, but I do know that God is sovereign. No matter what happens, we can thank him for what was, for what is, and for what is to come. He still holds the whole world in his hands, and he's still orchestrating all things for the good of his children, and ultimately, and most importantly, for his glory. So I hope you've learned and enjoyed the series, and as we lock this away in the vault, rather than closing with, thus ends the American Genesis, I'll just say, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Goal update number 26. Buckle up, because this one is definitely a goal update. There is just no question about that at all. So we're all friends here, right? Can I be honest? In all reality, I've been uh, mostly just coasting over the last week or so, or month, couple months or so, which of course means nothing overly spectacular in this update, but we'll knock this out to keep me honest, if nothing else. I figure it's going to be probably late August or early September before I really get back to it, but I'll keep these going so I don't get rusty. And really, it's only a month out. I'll be in prime cut shape just in time for snowsuit season. <sighs> All right. Well, as is my custom, time for a weigh-in. As of last Tuesday, I was actually down a pound from the week before. Not really sure why or how, but uh, but here we are. So that's 190 pounds on the dot, or 24.4 pounds down from my starting point in January, which is way, way outside of my goal. But like I said last update, I'll need to realign my weight loss goal. But I won't do that until I'm about ready to start back. You know, truth be told, I'm not really shocked. I mean, self-control is not one of my strongest spiritual gifts. I'd like to say otherwise, and it's not like I'm going on month-long benders or anything, but, you know, things like diets, yeah, it's not easy. No, I know, I'm, I'm not unique in this, I'm just saying it out loud. But as with all of the spiritual gifts, we aren't called to exhibit them perfectly, we're called to exhibit them and to grow them. Anyway, keep things interesting in this update. How do I feel after putting back on, what, 8-ish pounds from my realistic low a few months ago? Well, to some people, 8 pounds would be a lot. To me, it, it doesn't sound like much. But I can feel it. There's a little additional love handle jiggle. Not much, but a little more than there was before. Of course, the waistband of the jeans is slightly tighter. I'd guess maybe a half an inch on the belt. And overall, I'm just a hungry man. I mean, in my yo-yo dieting career, I've noticed this with me, that there comes a point where I just become famished, just just all the time. It's not that I'm doing anything extra. It's not that my body is actually burning anything extra, unfortunately. I'm just hungry beyond anything I was before I started the dieting or during the dieting. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but um, I don't like that. 
And that's going to be the hardest part, which it always is, to just say, uh, well, guess I'm going to be hungry. I'll get there, though. I'll get there. Anyway, this one is uh, obviously going to just stay a solid red for now. And next up is reading. Admittedly, nothing outstanding here either. Now, I am counting the pages of the books, the study guides I'll be reading with my latest Bible reading plan that I'm kind of developing as I go, but I'm not including pages read in the Bible. Why? I don't know, because that's the way I'm doing it. The study guides are admittedly not text-dense, but they also bring some scripture reading, some note-taking, and some question-answering that comes with them, so I'm counting it, and you can't stop me. So with that, I knocked out 74 pages over the course of the last week. Nothing stellar, but not bad. That brings me to 4,694 pages read on my march to 5,380. There, I guess, 5,381 if I'm going to beat 2019. That said, this is still a solid green. Uh, let's skip to devotions for a second. We're back on track with that, sitting at 122% of my goal pace. This is a solid green. We're currently in the Ten Commandments portion of the devotionals, and interestingly, one day we're reading the next commandment, then there's three or four days of devotions that use various scriptures to give further information regarding the commandment in the Old Testament and application in the New. A nice slow walkthrough of stuff that we normally blow through pretty quickly because, well, we've heard it a hundred times. Anyway, this one's a solid green. Okay, Bible reading. As I said last time, I'll be going through the Bible chronologically and slowly. I don't have a specific goal for pages or chapters read, just that I'm doing something each day. That amount will vary from day to day based on time, content, etc. But I'd say from a time perspective, I'd expect no less than 20 minutes, probably no more than 40 each day. Also, as I've already said, as I get to parts of the Bible that I have existing extra study material, I'll slow down and use those study guides and books to supplement my study. So, that said, last week I did my study five days out of the week. So we're starting solid at 100% of my goal pace. That means that uh, this one is a solid green, of course. And so far, I'm about three quarters of the way through the spiritual boot camp study guide, just laying out some basics of the Christian walk, and then I'll dive in starting at Genesis 1-1. This study guide is mostly made up of stuff I've heard before, but it's definitely got some additional perspective, and the questions at the end of each section help to cement those main ideas. I think this cobbled-together study will be good overall. We'll see. And that's it. Nothing overly impressive, nothing overly revelatory, just a basic quick update on goals. And uh, I now return you to your regularly scheduled day or night or whatever. Okay, bye. <laughs>